Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week in Health IT. How do we operate if the system does go down? Everybody is prepared for 24 hours or less. Once you start getting past that threshold, things get a lot more complicated. Thanks for joining us on This Week in Health IT Influence. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week in Health IT, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to our Influence show sponsors, Serious Healthcare and Health Lyrics, for choosing to invest in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. If you want to be a part of our mission, you can become a show sponsor as well. The first step is to send an email to partner at thisweekinhealthit.com. I want to take a quick minute to remind everyone of our social media presence. We have a lot of stuff going on. You can follow me personally, Bill J. Russell on LinkedIn. I engage almost every day in a conversation with the community around some health IT topic. You can also follow the show at This Week in Health IT on LinkedIn. You can follow us on Twitter, Bill Russell HIT. You can follow the show This Week in HIT on Twitter as well. Each one of those channels has different content that's coming out through it. We don't do the same thing across all of our channels. We don't blanket posts. We're actually pretty active in trying to really take a conversation in a direction that's appropriate for those specific channels. We really want to engage with you guys through this. We are trying to build a more broad community. So invite your friends to follow us as well. We want to make this a dynamic conversation between us so that we can move and advance healthcare forward. Today, we are joined by Brian Sterud, who is the VP of IT CIO CISO at Faith Regional Health Services. Good morning, Brian. Welcome to the show. Good morning. I'm excited to be on. I've watched a number of these and excited to participate. Yeah, it's 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 going to be fun. I, I like having uh, health systems like yours represented on the show because there are what some people coin as celebrity CIOs. You can go after the big IDNs and whatnot. But I was on a panel once. And one of the smaller health systems was there, and it dawned on me that all the same regulations, all the same cybersecurity needs, all the same compliance things, all the same clinical aspects were required from that person who had like a 10-person IT staff, as was required by me with a 700-person IT staff. And I, and it, I was sitting there going, I have no idea how they get all this stuff done. And you're not quite a 10-person, so tell us. Tell us a little bit about Faith Regional to, to start off with. So, yeah. So, we're located in Northeast Nebraska. So, Norfolk, Nebraska is where we're, uh, where we're at. We have one hospital licensed for about 129 beds. The reason I hesitate is this changed a little bit over the years. And employed multi-specialty physician practice with over 100 providers across a number of specialties here. And many of them are in within city limits, but probably about a 12, 13 of those clinics are scattered around Northeast Nebraska in primary care locations. And we have about 1,400 employees here. So is that pretty rural, the location that you cover? Yeah, yeah, it's very rural. We, we cover a really wide geography in order, to, in order to really have the market share that we need. In terms of we could have people driving almost 200 miles probably to the west from us. And a little, it's a little bit different in other directions, but we cover a really wide geography. Wow. 
All right. So, I mean, your role is interesting. Tell us a little bit about the IT organization. You're the CIO and CISO. Talk about your organization and your roles specifically. I've been here for about nine years. And we've a lot of things have changed and, and we've built it and done a lot of really great things here, I think, and, and built the team. As obviously over that course of time, security's become changed quite a bit. Not that it wasn't a focus nine years ago, but boy, is it different today. And and through that process, given the size of the organization we are, it's really been, you know, would be difficult probably for us to to have a full-time CISO. And so through through conversations with our CEO and how we can work together, the thought was, can I fulfill that role, be in that dual role? I know there, there are others that that do that kind of thing, but it's probably not the majority. And so come up with ways to do some educational things. And then there's there are some some other vendor arrangements that we work through that help that help through that process. So I still have that responsibility of all the things that you would assume with the CIO, but and then also have the the security officer side of things as well. Do you have a strong technical background? Is that your background? Yeah. I always kind of joke with my staff. I used to be really useful and I'm not as useful, but the way that I cut my teeth was being very hands-on technical and was certified in a whole bunch of technologies coming up in my career and through working at resellers and that kind of thing. And so then grew into a leadership role. And, and so most of my that technical expertise was on infrastructure type items. Wow. So it's, I mean, the, the smaller health systems, you're really an active part. One of the things when I went into my role, my team kept saying, stop trying to be the CTO, stop trying to be the CISO. We have those within our organization. But the reality is you, you play a little bit of, of those roles in the decision-making and the technology selection process and whatever in, in all aspects. And really, the smaller the health system, the more multifaceted you have to be able to step into those conversations. Yeah, it, it just, yeah, you wear multiple hats. You hear that all the time. We have a fantastic team that we've really built smart over the last nine years and tried to grow in the most appropriate way. Very strong teammates and other leadership within IT that, that help, help us get our, our job done every day. But one thing I would say, Bill, is that when we look at our organization compared to some of the very large organizations that we interact with, we can be really nimble because of those multiple hats that we wear. And we can be sometimes more, more effective because of it. So in other words, it's not the security guy throws the, something over the wall to the firewall guy that has to get changed, that has to, where there's all those siloed teams. We really have a cohesive team that works together and I think can problem solve faster because we don't have those different lanes, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Don't have as many meetings. If three of you happen to go out to lunch, you can actually start talking about the redesigning the the network and those kinds of things. You don't have to say, hey, let's call meetings over the next three months to uh, decide if this makes sense. That's interesting. Talk about the CISO role and how how is risk and security handled at your organization? You're the CISO, but is there a governing board? Is there a health system-wide group that helps sort of set the direction around security? Yeah. So we've worked really hard and are proud of a lot of the things that we've been able to do. So while I serve in that role, we have a security committee that is across the organization and involves stakeholders from, among others, HR, our physical security, our compliance team, 
our risk folks, IT folks, and sit on that committee and make a lot of decisions there and execute on a lot of the things that we're that we're looking at. A lot of what leads into that are things like our our annual risk assessment that we do, and then and that team takes that and we prioritize the work that needs to get done. And then, yeah, through through that committee for the most part. Being a senior management, I participate in our board meetings. So at the board level, they get updates quarterly, all of IT, but specifically also certain metrics that we track on the security side of things. And then annually, we do a presentation on the state of specifically on, on cybersecurity. The nature of this cause, well, clearly it's caused concern for all of us. I mean, you have Scripps, you have Skylakes Medical, you have St. Lawrence and others, but they went after hospitals of your size with, with ransomware. That has to have caused some concern. There used to be this mindset of, oh, we're small enough, they're not going to come after us, but they are coming after hospitals of your size at this point. Has that changed the conversation somewhat? I think due to some of the things that have gone on across the country, I think some of the things that have, have even happened locally here, we do some work for and have relationships with some area critical access hospitals as well. So it's become apparent the target that they are. And I, I just don't, the, the conversation about convincing our our senior executive team or our board on the threat is so much easier, unfortunately, than it was four or five years ago. It's very clear, and we've actually seen many of the things that have happened and some of them firsthand. And so the threat's always there right now, much like this isn't a new thought, much like everybody else, our, our preparedness is preparing for when it's going to happen. So we've actually spent a better part of this year on a pretty intense lessons learned on how do we operate if the system does go down. And one thing I don't think people always do is everybody, I think, is prepared for 24 hours or less. Once you start getting past that threshold, things get a lot more complicated. So we've spent a lot of time across the organization. One of our project managers has led an endeavor where we're working on that process. How would we operate? How do we get bills out the door? And then recovery. So if, if extended beyond 24 hours, how do we then recover from it properly? Make sure that patient care is first and foremost, and then make sure that we can get bills out the door and that kind of thing and make sure that we, have, we don't have an issue from a revenue perspective either. Yeah, Skylakes was down for close to 40 days, still not completely up. Scripps down for 30 plus days. I, I was saying a little while ago to somebody that our plans didn't, we didn't have plans to be down for 30 or 40 days. And I, I think that's one of the things that's sort of changing in our mindset of what does it look like to recover when you know core clinical systems are down for uh, multiple weeks, and how do we start to shrink that timeline from ransomware event to recovery? Make it a week instead of instead of forty some odd days. How does your team stay current on what's going on in that? Do you rely on vendor partners? I mean, how do you guys stay current on all the things that are going on and and morphing? I mean, you have things that are changing on the network side, infrastructure side, cloud side cybersecurity side. I mean, there's so many things changing. How do you stay current on all those things? Yeah, we do our best. I don't know if anybody's always, there's always something more that you can do. But given the fact, like I kind of going back to the conversation about the dual role that I serve in and 
the fact that we're not going to have a security team of 50 people. We leverage, we think, very smart contracts with other vendors. And I wouldn't necessarily always call it managed services, but advisory type services, making sure that we're informed that we work tightly with one vendor that really allows me to even consider having this dual role where I have access to to expertise that can help us there. And they, they also do a number of other things for us from a vulnerability assessments and that kind of stuff. So I think that we, given our size and what we're able to do, we have to be able to piecemeal those things in and that helps us stay ahead of things, hopefully, to the extent that we can and be prepared. And then, like I said, we've taken a really good look inward on what are our processes here and how do we deal with downtimes. And, and that doesn't really take any expertise other than a little bit of you know blood, sweat, and tears to get it done. So talk about the most impactful moves with regard to technology that you've made over the last you know 18 to 24 months. It's been a pretty dynamic time in healthcare. I'm curious what moves you guys have made with regard to technology that you would highlight? So for us, the main thing, the mantra that that we've been living, eating, breathing the last couple of years has been, we made a move to Epic that went live October of 2019 across the organization. And that obviously uh, allowed for us to have that complete view of the patient record. We had some siloed systems before that. That's been tremendous. Along with that, we also went to a, a new cloud-based ERP platform. And that's been evolving. And we did that in phases. So we, we had financials and supply chain that right away. And then late, we've layered on after that payroll and HR. And, and now looking at even further down the road with talent acquisition, talent management, and some other things. So that's probably been the most now, I know, I know those are sort of block and tackle things and maybe not super interesting, but... but um, no, which which ERP did you go with? In for Cloud Suite. Okay. That's interesting. So is, is this the first time you're going to a cloud-based ERP or have you always been on-site or have you been uh, hosted before? We had had aspects of it that were cloud, but we this is the first time having the entire fully integrated product in the cloud. What's the biggest learning from really having the the suite in the cloud. Do you have the level of customization that you want or or uptime and that kind of stuff? What, what's, what's the biggest learning of moving offsite? Uptime really hasn't been much of an issue. I think the biggest learnings, we do definitely have the level of customization almost to a fault. So I think that our philosophy has been to the extent that we can take that foundation build or that standard build, that's what we need to do. There's too many potential room for error when you start creating variations now, obviously you need to in certain circumstances, but making sure being disciplined about only making those changes that we need to make. And if the foundation build can satisfy that, then that's what we need to take. Yeah. You have the same thing on the EHR side. Did you try to stay with a standard foundation build? Absolutely. Yeah. That's very much standardized. We were participating through a connect program there and that that actually forces some of that, but I think in a good way and make sure that we are as standardized as we possibly can be. I was just reading about the VA and they're getting reviewed on their Cerner project. You're obviously an Epic shop, but one of the things I, I sort of took exception to is I'm reading this and they said, clinicians were less productive the week following the EHR implementation. And I just, I just sort of laughed. I'm like, that's true 
everywhere. I mean, to measure productivity the week after an EHR implementation, you really do change everything. You change the workflows, you change the system, you change the technology. Talk about the clinician experience from the point you went live in 2019 till today. What kind of things have you done to improve? Obviously, it was a jump up in terms of technology and capabilities, but what have you done to improve the experience all along that way? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I wish I had this off the top of my head, but Epic measures that productivity and projects where you, how long it should take you to get back to uh, previous. And our clinicians actually knocked it out of the park. And our I can't remember the time th- frame threshold, but we were back to where we needed to be much ahead of the, the projections. So in that regard, that was fantastic. Everybody the thing about that I love about the Midwest, to be a little bit biased, is that the, the work ethic here is second to none, and there is no there's no failure. People will not accept it. So everybody did what they needed to do to get that going and get back up to that level. As far as optim- optimization after that, if you think about the timeline, and I forget this all the time, our CEO reminds me, we went live in October of 2019, and if it's March 2020 is not very far after that. So we we spent some time doing some optimization. We spent some time, all those things that go with the go live, right? That didn't work perfectly. That sometimes, some of them are more minor, but they might take a little bit, a little while to, to alleviate. And so then we jump right into COVID and everybody's world's been upside down ever since. So I don't know that we have regular rounding that gets done with clinicians. And we have folks out in front of them trying to make sure that it's operating at the best of their abilities. So we really haven't done any sort of full-scale optimization relative. I'm sure you'll get back to that or be asked to get back to that. That's one of those things that just never ends, right? You're always optimizing the system. So Brian, I I did a little research on you prior to our discussion. And one of the articles that comes up is about your your network upgrade. You guys did a pretty comprehensive network upgrade. Tell us a little bit about that. What did you guys do and, and what was the uh, goal of that project? Yeah, so it kind of started with our on our wireless side. We needed to make a change there and looked at and you know, vendors. Uh, I'm trying to read, that was before my time, but if you think about it, it's probably 12 to 15 years ago. The vendor landscape is a lot different today than it was then. And so uh, really, you got rid of your three com switches? Is that what you? No, I don't. yeah, I don't, I don't know if it goes back that far, but go, go ahead. Yeah, so we went through that wireless evaluation and selected a vendor, and then it allowed us then to do over time, then converge that with our wired infrastructure that gave us a, a number of capabilities from a management perspective, but also really leading up to getting to a good network access control product and ability to do micro segmentation. So it, it led us, it's, it, it's taken a long time to get there, but now we have the ability to profile devices, make sure those devices are only able to have communication with what they need to. The example I always give to oversimplify it for people is that my laptop has no need to talk to an IV pump. There's, there should be no purpose for that to happen. And so things like that and getting to the ability that we can, and it, it really comes down to, again, limiting the damage in the, in the event we did have an attack. That was probably the biggest thing other than just getting refreshed technologies, getting to the point where we can do those types of things. 
there's a lot of power in the software-defined networks. And I, I read that article, you went in the Aruba direction. I just interviewed the CTO for Aruba and he was talking about software-defined. That micro-segmentation is so different from what we used to do. I mean, we'd have global rules, then we'd have port-level rules, then we'd have device level. I mean, it was a, a team of people, a significant amount of work to maintain those rules. But now that administration become, it's almost like a learning system as well. It's learning as it goes, what you're plugging into it, what kind of traffic should go across it. It's pretty interesting. How how many people do you have managing this? And what what is the administration? That's really only a couple uh, people that are managing and, and looking at it. We leverage and work together with vendors. I will say since I, I never know whether we can say vendor names or not, but since that's out there, they've been a fantastic partner. And when I say partner, I mean partner. There are those out there that that I think strive to have partnership with their customer. And so far, Aruba absolutely walks that walk and has been a great partner with us. And again, we work together with some other local vendors to make sure that we can deliver on that promise. Yeah, the, the nice thing about this show is I, I talk to all my vendors, all the partners of the show before they sponsor. And I say, look, we might talk about your competitors in a positive light. We might talk, And I said, because people want to know what you're using. Hey, so you're about the same size as somebody who's listening to this show. And they might be saying, hey, our network's gotten pretty wild. And instead of me getting emails, which I do from time to time, hey, you talk to this person, what are they doing with this? They can just hear it from you, what kind of stuff you're using. Aruba happens to be one of our channel sponsors as well. I'm not talking to you about it because of that. I'm talking to you about it because I remember how complex it got. And even around the guest networks that we had to set up and being able to identify what those people were doing, identify the traffic. We also took an approach of assume they're already in your network and now you have to find them. And we needed more sophisticated tools every day. And we kept bringing in third-party tools. It always kept coming back to me of, why can't my network vendor, why am I plugging in a sniffer to see what's going on here and a this to do this and a this to do this? That should be built into the software. They should know what's going on across that network. And that's one of the reasons I was I was taken by your approach. And also to go wireless first and then go down to the wired. I think a lot of people start at the wired and then go out to the wireless. So it's interesting that you went in that direction. Was there a reason for that? Uh, just just time frame on. I wish I could give you some really great intelligent answer. Just the time frame on the age of the equipment and what needed to be replaced first. But yeah. we did. We talked about it. We did sort of consider everything. And obviously, I think I actually say HPE's done a great job with that acquisition with Aruba. That's gone well too. Do you place a life cycle on the equipment that you purchase? You purchase a new workstation and you essentially say this is a five-year device or a new access point and say this is a six-year device or that kind of stuff? Or or are, are you not that proactive yet with regard to asset management? I got to tip my hat to some of our finance folks. We're really required to do a pretty good job of projecting out multiple-year plans for capital. And so, and then anything that comes in the door, what that life cycle might be so that we can predict when we may see those expenses. So especially when they're not an operational type expense, so you can anticipate when we're going to have years that we may spend more than others. So we do a pretty good job of projecting out those life cycles on, on almost everything. 
So what's the priorities over the next 24 months from a technology perspective? Well, I mean, I think right now, so a lot of the a lot of the things that we're working on have to do with just continuing down that ERP road and, and adding on, on some modules that we're anticipating from a talent management and talent acquisition. We're currently in the, in the process of working on some of those things. And then there's some others that, that come along later on to get to that fully integrated ERP system. There's always security initiatives. So looking at taking a hard look at some endpoint protection and looking at DLP and, and where that um, sits within our organization and whether we're doing all the right things that we need to be doing. How do you stay up with regulatory? I mean, the price transparency, 21st century cures, is that something that the, the vendors that you've partnered with come up with solutions around or are you are you actively trying to pursue some of those things as well? No, those are, I mean, those certainly are things that we're always on and uh, just to if I can then throw a plug in for Chime as well. And Chime's been uh, a tremendous resource for those things, especially from somebody in a smaller organization. I'm able to get hooked into some committees. I sit on some public policies committees and some other um, committees that gives me insight into what's going on, helps us anticipate, listen to a bunch of smart people talk about their thoughts on, on those regulations that are coming as they're coming down. And then that allows us to execute on, on things locally where we need to with our vendors. So, so that's one way that, that we uh, tackle that and work together with our vendors. We work together with our other partners within the Community Connect Network. That also helps as well. That's awesome. Has, has your staff come back to the office yet? Yeah. So this is a little bit unique. I don't know that I've really talked to anybody that brought them back quite as quickly as we did. So one thing about the Midwest was it took a little bit longer. We didn't see the surges the same way that everybody did in the coast. Our staff here, our, our IT organization, has been a top-rated employee engagement or department every time we've done our surveys since we've been here. And they enjoy each other. They work really hard. They play hard together. And because of that, they wanted to come back to the office. We brought them back around June or July last year, back into the office. And that's pretty, I think, pretty unique. I mean, there's a lot that are not back in. And we've been back in the office for over a year. Even in some cases, we now we had to do that smart. We had to segregate people certain ways. We had to follow protocols. But people just really wanted to be around their coworkers more so than sitting in their basement. And it's just a tremendous culture, I think, that we have here that our employees want to do their work that way. Yeah. Have you modified your facilities or anything at all, or just practicing good practice around there and vaccinations have really helped to mitigate any major risk of the work environment? Yeah. I mean, early on, we we had some of the luxuries of, we have within Norfolk, we have two campuses right now. There were two hospitals that merged a number of years ago. So we have space that was available. So we were able to just segregate teams Early on, without knowing how, with exposure risk and those kinds of things, we made sure to do that so that we didn't have we didn't have a point of failure where we'd have to send exposure home, and all of a sudden we lost the, the two or three people that work on a certain technology. So we tried to separate those, and then so the social distancing within the location they were at and mask requirements. Obviously, vaccines have helped a ton as well. So it's been something, like I said, that's. I think a little bit different than other organizations, but it really has turned out well. And we've had no 
significant issues. Certainly we've had some folks that have been before the vaccination had actually gotten COVID, but we never had any real mass issues or ex- any exposure issues. That's fantastic. So Brian, this will air actually after HIMSS, but we're recording before HIMSS. I'm, I'm curious, are you, are you going to be attending HIMSS? So I'm actually not attending. I am actually on a panel through Aruba. I'll be attending that virtually. We do have some people that are going. It just didn't happen to work for me to attend this year. Yeah, it'll be an interesting conference. I think I saw an email yesterday, 19,000 people planning to attend in person. The first one I attended almost had 40,000 people at it. So that's roughly half, but still 19,000 is 19,000 people. That's a sizable conference. So it'll be interesting to see what what comes out of, of that conference. Brian, thanks. Thanks again for your time. It was great meeting you. Great having this conversation. Yeah, it's always fun to do these kinds of things. And hopefully uh, if there's something that somebody can learn or wants to reach out, certainly um, happy to happy to speak with colleagues and network. Sounds good. Take care. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel, from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note. Perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to this show. It's, it's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or they can go wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, which is what I use, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're out there. They can find us. Go ahead, subscribe today, send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our channel sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. Those are VMware, Hillrom, Starbridge Advisors, Aruba, and McAfee. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. 